Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Obviously, we didn't do Sunday school last week. I had four lessons prepared, and I'm going to skip last week's lesson, so I'm just going to go right into four. So you'll, you're going to have to figure out what you missed and just fill in the gaps. Now, um, <clears throat> yeah, I may go back and do, a, do something. There's a couple options. I'm thinking about uh, going through Acts, maybe just kind of doing like a long series through Acts, so maybe start back at the beginning and on a, on a blog, just kind of go through Acts. And, and we'll cover some things that were already covered in here. We'll cover what we missed last week. But the thing with this Sunday school class is it's not just a study on Acts. It's also a study on covenants. And what makes that difficult is that one of the ways I'm approaching covenants is by telling you that the way we learn about covenants is not, the way we have learned about covenants is not necessarily the best way or the only way that getting into the meat of Scripture rather than letting systematic theology or confessions inform our understanding of, of what a covenant is, is, is better. Like, let's, let's use Acts as a, as a vehicle for understanding covenants better. Because there's a lot of things. So as, as I uh, have said in our review, covenants typically have these five components. They have, a, you know, you read any book on covenants, they're going to tell you, here's what a covenant is. A covenant is a contractual agreement between two parties. A covenant has a mediator. Covenant has blessings and curses. A covenant has a memorial sign. Covenant uh, expands as, as it progresses. And, you know, there's the Adam, Adamic covenant, and the Noahic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And, yes, I agree 100% with all of that, but I also want to expand our understanding of these things and, 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 and pick up on some of these characteristics of a covenant that maybe we don't think about. Um, and that makes it difficult, because I want to, uh, sometimes when you're, you're going through a book like Acts, there's a lot of things that don't fit the mold, but that's what I want to focus on. And so as I was thinking about what to do for our final Sunday school class, I really think Lesson three was going to be on the Ascension, and then lesson four was going to be on Pentecost. And I think Pentecost is really going to be more helpful to talk about covenant, and, and uh, so I'm just going to skip ahead to that. But like I said, I may go back, or not go back, but I may do a little, a little series. This could be like a three-year series if I just do a little bit every week on Acts, you know, and just take, take our time through it. And we'll hit a lot of this interesting stuff that's in Acts. I could, I could go off on a tangent for seven hours on all the cool things in just the first chapter of Acts. And I, uh, I will try not to do that. I have no promises, though. There's some cool stuff. So review, I don't want to spend a lot of time on review. I just mentioned the main stuff. The other thing I would want to mention from our first lesson, again, as a reminder, is the word covenant literally means to create. And so creation is inherent in the word covenant, which is, strangely enough, something that many systematic theologians don't even bring up. So 
we need to remember that. Covenant equals creation. Um, again, we talked about the different um, ways to understand what the new covenant is. There's all this language like regeneration, restoration, reformation, refreshing, the fullness of time, all things new, new creation, the latter days, the end of the age, the last days. These are, this is all language that's in the New Testament that is referring to what this new covenant is. And we talked, again, as a review about different ways that you can understand the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how these, there's similarities that change, that had, take on new meaning, they're fulfilled. So, for instance, you had a central sanctuary, you had the temple or the um, tabernacle in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you have these decentralized sanctuaries, wherever the church is, wherever two or three are gathered, that's where the, that's where Christ is. That's where the sanctuary is. That's where God meets his people. Um, moving on, again, uh, we got into Acts two weeks ago, and what I did was I started showing that the beginning of Acts has these elements of creation in them and covenant in them. So right from the beginning, there was 40 days, there was the Holy Spirit, there was be fruitful and multiply, all these words that, that pop up, again, it, it's not just creation that you get this. You've got that same language in the Noahic covenant, exact same language. And so covenantal language is creation language, is um, marriage language even. So you can, you can, you can say that. Um, and of course, in the New Testament, that is exactly how Paul describes your relationship with Christ. And the covenant he has with his people is he describes it in terms of marriage. So let's, uh, let's keep moving on. Um, I laid a foundation there, and, and hopefully some of the other review stuff will come back after our two-week break. But let's talk about, so we're jumping ahead to Pentecost. So what was Pentecost? You know, if you say what is Pentecost, immediately people are going to think of this this event where the Spirit came down, tongues of fire, they started speaking in other languages. Um, but let's go back to the beginning, because Pentecost didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Like, Pentecost is an old covenant feast. So it is, um, in Leviticus 23, you get the, the Feast of Weeks. That's where Pentecost is. It's, it's 50 days after Passover. And I want belabor this. I think y'all can pick up on this, but I do want to, I want to just listen to the language of what happened at the cross and see how this matches up. Passover. So in the old covenant feast, you begin with Passover, which was the 14th day of the first month. And it's at midnight. So it's sort of moving from the 14th day to the 15th day. Um, that's, so it's a Friday that begins on a Friday. Then you immediately go into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days. It goes from the Sabbath to the Sabbath. And then that next day, so that, that Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th. But you also have the next day. So if Passover begins on a Friday, what, what day are we talking about? The 16th day is the day of first fruits. That's a Sunday. So uh, the day of first fruits begins. And then 50 days past the day, the, the feast of the first fruits, you have Pentecost. So 
you see the you see what's happening with Jesus on past, you know, on, the, on Friday, and then on Sunday he resurrects the first fruits, and then fifty days later you have Pentecost, and so Jerusalem was full, full of Jewish people who were there celebrating this feast. Now, what's interesting about the day of Pentecost, and maybe we don't think about this all the time because we think about the fact that everybody's there celebrating this feast. I mean, people were there for Passover, and, and so two days later, they're still mingling, especially the men. Like, Jewish men were required. There were three feasts that the Jewish men were required to attend in Jerusalem. This is one of them. So you have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish men and families in this Low, small, what is a very small location, and but it's Sunday. Pentecost is on a Sunday. Pentecost is always on a Sunday, the way the church calendar works out. And so, what would they be doing on Sunday? What would be the, what would the Christians be doing on Sunday? Well, Acts tells us exactly what they were doing. They were gathered. So let me uh, let me read real quick and. Uh, show you. So Acts chapter 2 begins like this. So the, the story, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit begins when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And that, or that word means assembled. So they were assembled in one place. That assembling is they were gathered for worship. If you go back into chapter 1, this comes up over and over. We even talked about this in a previous Sunday school class. So you can look down at, uh, let's see, um, uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Upper rooms are always corresponding to worship. Things, upper rooms are where worship happens. Mountains, upper rooms, I won't get it, that'll be... That'll be for the blog. But um, so they're worshiping together, and it says, if you move down to verse 14, all of these men, the disciples, and later we find out how many, there was 120 of them. Not, so there was disciples, there was the ladies, there was other, you know, there was the apostles, disciples, 120 gathered in this room, devoting themselves to prayer. Um, so they're worshiping together. They're on a Sunday. They're gathered. They are assembled together on a Sunday. And that is when the Spirit comes upon them. Now, um, Acts 2 says twice that these men who are in Jerusalem are devout men. So these are not, so this is another contextual thing you have to remember. Covenant language happens with the people of God. But of course, during this time, and this is something we talked about previously, you have a lot of corruption. You have a lot of wickedness going on. In the temple, you have uh, fake high priests. You have people who have bought their way into their positions. You have leaders in Israel who could care less about the worship of Israel, but just want power. They want money. But we're not talking about these people. Perhaps they were there. Perhaps they were making a show of things. But what Acts says twice is that these were devout men. So these were true Jewish worshipers of God who had gathered specifically for these feasts because they believed it is the most important thing that they're doing. 
This is who this covenantal um, thing is happening to, you know. Um, and what happens? Well, the Spirit comes into this upper room. Now, there's debate out there. A lot of people will say, well, they were actually in the temple because um, in Luke 24, verse 53, it says that the, uh, the, the apostles were continually in the temple blessing God. And that is true. Like they would, this is the theme of the New Testament is when missionaries go out, when the apostles go out, they first, they, they first go to the Jews and then they go to the Gentiles. But they are not gathered in the temple. They're gathered in an upper room. This is what it says specifically. Kind of a, a, a way to confirm this, I think, is if you go to Acts 10 when the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but just for now, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and again, they are in a house. They are gathered together in a house. This is not, they're not in a temple. They're not in a synagogue. They're in a house. That's where the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes to where they are gathered together worshiping. They are not doing their temple thing. They are actually doing new, they're, 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 they're worshiping God on the Lord's Day on a Sunday. Um, so let me, uh, let me move down here. And, so worship now, so, so I'm making this point about worship. I want to, I want to, so Two weeks ago, if you remember, I, I brought up that there, you know, when we're talking about covenants, there's all kinds of other ways to talk about covenants. So one way I talked about it was food. Like that's something that hardly ever comes up when you read about covenants like in a systematic theology. But food is very important. And so you have these food, uh, every covenant has something where there's a meal being served. Um, here's another thing, worship. Worship is always happening when a covenant happens. Genesis 3, Adam is in the garden. And perhaps we miss this because we think of a garden in this lovely scenery, but the garden is where God was coming to meet Adam. Eden had a garden placed in it. In this garden is where Adam was meant to tend, and he would meet God in this garden. The garden was the sanctuary. This is why when you get to the tabernacle and then the temple, it has all of this engraved flowers and pomegranates and palm trees, and like the temple resembles a garden. The garden is the first place that God meets his people. It's the very first sanctuary. So Adam is in a sanctuary, and what happens when he sins? The first animal sacrifice. God covers Adam and Eve. He kills an animal, and he places this covering on them, so you have animal sacrifice. You have, of course, food. And we mentioned this before. You have food there. Adam and Eve eating from the fruit um, wrongly. And then the other component I think is important that you see in, in, in uh, all, this covenant, all these covenants is God speaks to them. God comes to Adam and says, hey, you know, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? And, the, and, Adam, and God has a conversation with Adam. And then God pronounces curses on the, the serpent and Eve and Adam. So God is speaking to them. Well, let's move on. Noah, Genesis 8. Noah gets off the ark, and when the covenant is established with him, he, the first thing he does is he builds an altar. He makes an animal sacrifice. 
There is a whole component there about food where now Noah is given the ability to kill animals and eat them. And there's this whole language here of what he's allowed to eat now. And of course, God speaks to him. Abraham, Genesis 14 and 15. Remember, we talked about Melchizedek, so we know there was bread and wine there. There was a tithe that was paid. Abraham, is in, in the covenant, is told to separate these animals apart. He sacrificed these animals. And so there's animal sacrifice. And what does God do? He speaks to Abraham. Moses, uh, Exodus 24, he is told to come up to the Lord to speak with him. There is an altar. There is food. Remember, he and the elders eat a meal together. There is animal offerings. And again, the Lord speaks to Moses. And now... Here is, um, I'm going to mention David, but I also want to, if you remember, I do think there's some interesting things going on with David. When we talk about the Davidic covenant, it's not as, uh, not as similar as these other, other covenants. But if you begin with 2 Samuel 6, so most people would say the, the Davidic covenant is in 2 Samuel 7. Well, if you go to 2 Samuel 6, what happens? Like David has rescued the ark. He brings the ark back. He has overcome the Philistines. And remember, what we remember of that is David in his, his dance. You know, David's so excited, and he dances, and his wife, Michal, gets angry about that. Well, that's, David brings this ark back. There's an altar, and it says around the altar, he starts offering sacrifices, and he's worshiping God, and he's blessed. He's, he's praising God. There's food there. There's a whole meal God speaks, so here's the difference. God doesn't speak to David. He speaks to David through Nathan, through the prophet Nathan. And then there's one other interesting thing that happens here. And remember, I made this point two weeks ago. When it comes to food, what happened? David is the only one in the Davidic covenant. God doesn't feed his people. David actually is the one that brings Mephibosheth to his table and feeds him. Well, in this passage... God doesn't bless the people. It's David who makes the covenant with the people. David blesses the people. So there's something interesting going on there that I think we need to keep in our sights. And I'm going to talk a lot more about David this morning. He's going to kind of be our focus um, as we go through Acts. But um, So anyways, there's this whole worship component here, which then gives us the context to what's happening when the Spirit comes upon the church. Like, they are worshiping God. And it makes it more obvious. Perhaps you're not convinced because you say, well, they're gathered together. You know, maybe, get, you know, it's, that word does mean assemble, and it is the word used for when the church comes together. But maybe that's not convincing enough. But if we really open up our mind to what's happening in the Old Covenant, and we see that God comes to His people when they are truly gathered together in their hearts, not as God constantly tells them, I don't care about your worship when you, your heart's not in it, when you're actively leaving here and going off and sinning and you are just mocking this. He wants true worship. Well, that's where God makes covenants with people is when they are truly worshiping Him. And now the disciples and the apostles and the, and the women are all worshiping God together. Jesus has just ascended to heaven. They are stunned. We're going to talk a little bit about this in a bit, get into more detail, but... They're worshiping, and God comes to them, and the Spirit is what? It is a promise. The promise of the Spirit 
That's covenantal language. The Spirit comes upon these people. This is a covenantal act. Um, now let's talk about, um, so this is interesting too in Acts. So Acts 1, the very first thing, we already read this, this is the first thing we read um, in our first Sunday school. But what happens? They're gathered around uh, Jesus. So remember, Jesus, he has been with them for 40 days, and he's told them all this amazing stuff, and he's revealed the truth of Scripture to them. And just before he ascends, he tells them, um, let, let me read it. Uh, he says, uh, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the promise, which he said, you heard from me. So I've given you this promise, so it's going to happen. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's not just, so there's a promise of the Spirit. So this is not Pentecost, but it is Jesus telling them this is going to happen. And this is another interesting component of covenants. Every single co covenant, if you go back a little bit, you're going to find God actually promising that this will happen. So again, if we just look at covenants and we tie it to the event, we miss out on a lot of things. So um, in the Noahic covenant, Genesis 6, 11 through 13, and in verse 18, you could, and I'm not going to read all these things just to make sure we, we, we get everything in, but, um, and we've read this before, we read this a couple of weeks ago, um, but God comes to Noah and says, hey, I'm, I'm separating you. I'm calling you to do this act. And you know why? Because I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm making a promise to you that I'm going to covenant myself to you. He doesn't do it right there. That's not where the covenant happens. The covenant happens in uh, Genesis 8 and 9, after the ark. But God comes to him first and says, I am going to do this thing for you, I promise. And then Noah has to do something. He has to build an ark. He has to call all the, you know, all the animals come to him, two by two. And all this stuff happened. You know, the, you know the story of Noah. But all these things happen based on the promise that is then fulfilled afterwards. Abraham, the call of Abraham. You begin the story, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, maybe I will read that because uh, we haven't read that yet. Um, now the Lord said to Abram, that's how, you know, we, it begins with, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the promise. God says you do this thing, and there some, I'm going to covenant myself. You're going to become a great nation. You're going to bless the nations. Your name's going to become great. And what happens? Well, no, what does Abraham have to do? He has to go. He has to pick up, take his family, and go on this journey. And a lot of stuff happens, of course. But then you get to Genesis 15, and there you have the, the covenant that God had promised. He fulfills it. But notice again, Something has to happen in the middle there. Abraham has to be obedient. Abraham has a job to do, and then the, the covenant happens. Mosaic covenant. You go to Exodus 3, and 
Let's read this, Exodus 3, 13 through 17. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and all the, you know, the Ite people, and uh, to the land flowing with milk and honey. So that's the promise, to, but Moses has stuff to do, right? You know, Moses, it, this happens, and it's going to be a while before, you know, he's got to confront Pharaoh. He's got to, you know, go through these ten plagues, you know, these ten plagues happen. Then he's got to lead Israel out of Egypt, and there's the Red Sea crossing. And then, of course, you have Moses in the wilderness. And eventually they come to Sinai, Exodus 24. And that's where the covenant is established. But you get the promise ahead of time. Finally, let's talk about David. 2 Samuel 6, we already talked about that. There is, um, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong one. I'm like, hey, I already, that looks familiar. Um, the Davidic covenant. Uh, 1 Samuel um, 16, let's read this. Um, this is the anointing of David. So 16, 12 through 13, I'll just read a quick bit of it. You know the story. You know how Samuel is sent to anoint a new king. Saul has failed. And it's, it's one of the sons of Jesse, but it turns out it's the weakest, the smallest one, the one least likely to be the king. And he sent and brought him in. And now, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So David is anointed the king and given the Spirit as this young man back in 1 Samuel 16. David does not become king for a long time. 2 Samuel 7, if we're going to use the typical uh, markers, that's where the Davidic covenant is. It's a while from there. David has a lot to do before he officially is covenanted to God, where he becomes the king. He's got to flee from Saul, you know, for a long time. He's got to face Goliath. He's got a lot that goes on before he becomes, um, before that covenant is made. So, with that in mind, Let's go back to Acts 1. The promise is given by Jesus to the, to the apostles. They're sitting there. He says, I promise the Spirit's about to come upon you, and then he goes up to heaven. And then you have what? This, so ascension is on the 40th day. you got 10 more days that happen, and then Pentecost happens. And that's when the Spirit's going to come upon them. Now, I think it's more than that. I think there's actually, you have the beginning of the Spirit comes upon him. I think there's a, there's a he comes on the, the Jew. We're going to get into this, hopefully, but um, if I have time. But you have two Pentecosts that are going to happen, or I'd say Pentecost. Obviously, this is called Pentecost because it happens on this day. But the Spirit is going to come upon 
people twice. He's going to come upon the Jews and he's going to come upon the Gentiles. So I do think there's a, there's a gap, there's more to the story. But let's just narrow it down to 10 days. What's going to happen if every other covenant has had a promise, work to do, and then a fulfillment? What's going on here? What happens? Well, it may seem kind of weird. If you look at it and you go, these seem like very incidental things. Like, well, sure, they had to uh, replace Judas. He's gone, so we got to get a 12th disciple there's some important things going on here. This is not just about making sure all the seats were full. There's, there's something going on here. But the first thing that happens is Jesus goes up to heaven, and the angel is like, what are you doing standing here looking up in heaven? You know, he's going to come back. Get to work is basically what they say. Um, I do want, this is going to be something I flush out a lot more on the blog, but I do want to make a point. They are, where are they? Does anybody know where they are when Jesus ascends into heaven? They're Mount of Olives. They're on the Mount of Olives. They're where Jesus died. They're, so there's the, again, I'll get into it, but I just want to mention here that they are up on a mountain. They are on the Mount of Olives. They are in the presence of Jesus. Olives are anointing oil. They're holy. It's, 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 it's a, um, there's a lot going on here, but essentially what's happening is they are, you know, there's the old evangelical kind of like, you got to get, you know, you got to come down from the mountain and go out, you know, you can't stay on the mountain forever. That's kind of true. They're up on the mountain with Jesus. They are in a holy place. And the angel says, all right, get to work, get down that mountain, get back to, you know, go. And that's what, the, so that's the first thing they have to do. They have to leave the mountain and go back to Jerusalem and Wait. That's what their job is, is wait, be patient, endure. And so they're waiting. And I already mentioned, what's the next thing they do? They start worshiping. They gather together. They all get in one room and they start praying. And so they're praying together. They're assembled together. They, the, 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 the word there, they are of one accord. Um, so um, they are of one mind, one path. I was going to make a card joke there, but I'm not going to do that. That's, that's too easy. One accord. But, um. And then the replacement of Judas. There's a lot going on with the replacement of Judas. I'm going to just talk about things that relate to David. Because here's something that's really fascinating to me and something for you to chew on that we won't talk about necessarily this morning. But isn't it interesting that Peter says, well, why do, they have to, why do we need to choose a new apostle? So that the scriptures will be fulfilled out of the mouth of David. So David said, and then he quotes Psalm 69, 25, and then he quotes Psalm 109, 8. And, uh, For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Two totally different psalms that aren't connected. Uh, one psalm is, is, is early on in David's life. He's writing it as he's being pursued by, uh, was it Doeg? Um, and then the, final, the second one is, uh, let another take his office, is at the end of David's life. It's a psalm he wrote near the end of his life that's referring to something completely different. And here's Peter going, okay, well, you know, Judas, this fulfills these two things. So something to think about when you think about uh, what exegesis is, because the apostles had an interesting way to, to uh, translate and to, uh, 
uh, interpret the Bible. And of course, we don't interpret it like that, but it is interesting to see how, it's something to think about as we see how the disciples make these connections. Um, but the other thing I want to I point out, not only is the replacement of Judah connected to David, but here's another really interesting thing that's happening here. So the, the disciples are replacing Judas. And the story of Judas what happens is in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Judas is, we're told that Judas decided to betray Jesus right after the anointing at Bethany. So Jesus is anointed at Bethany, and it says at that moment, Judas decides to betray him. Um, at 1 Samuel 16, going back, we already talked about 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king, and, and then immediately... Saul is then filled with a harmful spirit. It's the same language. The moment that Jesus is anointed, Judas, the spirit, remember the devil enters him. He, is, he has a spirit of betrayal. He's going to betray Jesus. The moment David is anointed, Saul is filled with a harmful spirit and immediately begins to try to kill you know, David. So there's an interesting connection there as we're thinking about covenants and what the disciples are having to do here because it's, it's connecting them to the Davidic covenant. The, the disciples have a job, and it seems very, you know, normal. Like, hey, we had 12 of us, there's now 11, let's get another guy in here. But there's more going on here. And, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff here that we're not going to get into, but stay tuned. Um, now, verse 2 of uh, chapter 2, let's talk about some of the details of Pentecost. Um, first thing we read is, uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came, now we may want to skip over this and talk about the Spirit and the rushing Spirit and everything, but let's not skip over this phrase, from heaven. Um, from heaven. So when God reveals to the disciples in Acts 2, what he reveals is not necessarily the same thing that you see elsewhere in the Bible, let's say like Ezekiel 1, but it is meant to convey the same thing. So they may not have seen what Ezekiel saw, this chariot coming down with all these weird eyes everywhere and, and rotating back and forth, but this rushing sound is coming from heaven, and it is Jesus on his throne coming to them. He is rushing toward them. Remember, I kind of emphasized this recently, you know, just, you know, that, that, that language is what happened to David. The, the spirit, that's, it's the same word that rushed upon him when he was anointed. Well, now the, the, the disciples are being anointed and the, there's this rushing spirit coming upon them from heaven. And that's very important because where is Jesus? Bodily, he's in heaven. He has ascended the throne. He is fully God, fully man. He's at the throne of God. He's, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He is coming to them. Um, so it says, uh, and so there are other moments in the Bible we could also add. I'll just, I'll just point out, you have uh, Job with God in the whirlwind. You have Moses in the burning bush. You have these, what they call our theophanies. So when God comes to his people, but um, what is happening here is that God is coming to his people to create a new temple, a new dwelling place. God is coming to dwell with his people now. Um, 
like the sound of a violent rushing wind. This rushing of wind event happens, and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The rushing wind is the movement of God's throne, which then fills his new temples. So again, emphasis here, this is not individuals the way we typically think about it in the evangelical world. They are very careful to point out that they are assembled together. They are of one mind. They are of one accord. They are one people gathered together. Yes, they are made up of individuals. There's 120 of them, but they are of one mind. They are of one body, and this the Spirit is coming to dwell with them. This is the new temple. Um, Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of God, and your, your translation may say, in the cool of the evening, you know, but that's not, the, it's a strange translation. It is the Spirit. And the Spirit of the evening is when they heard the sound of God. So even Adam, the same language is used, the rushing sound, that, that wind sound, the Spirit, the ruach, is what Adam experiences in the garden, except this time he's not coming to rest on Adam because Adam has sinned. Adam is kicked out because of his sin. Um, verse 3, tongues of fire, tongues as of fire. Not tongues of fire, but tongues as of fire. And this is something to reflect on again. Like, why, why, why would the Bible describe it like that? Like, where else? Like, why tongues of fire? Why not just say, like, swords of fire or uh, columns of fire? Like, tongues, that word tongue literally is referring to language. It's, it's not even like the, you know, your, in your mouth. It's, it's referring to, it's the same word, glossa. It's the same word that's, and the best I can come up with, and I think there's a lot that you could point to this, including the, the, the Bible's language on, or the Bible's, uh, what it has to say about language. So if you go to Proverbs, if you go to James, there's a lot about glossa in the Bible. But it is interesting that God uses that word to describe what is happening to the, these people as this fire is coming down on them. Um, that'll be something in addition that I'll probably get into more on the blog. But, um, but it is an odd description. It's something to think about as you're, because uh, I think sometimes we just kind of skim over it. You know, oh, tongues of fire, but why tongues? That's so, it's a strange description. Of course, what happens next? They begin to speak in tongues. So perhaps that is as simple as that. Maybe that's the connection. But I want to focus on the fact, so uh, here's another word that's important. It says that the tongue, uh, just emphasized it, it was on them. It rest, the word is rested. It said that the tongues of fire rested on them. This word rested is rahaf. It dwelt, it hovered, it appointed, it took up residence. That's what that word means. In the Bible, this word, it, it, this is actually not a very common word. You get it in Genesis 1-2. Um, hovering, fluttering. That's the same word that the, the, if you read like the Septuagint, it's the word. So the Greek version of the Old Testament is sometimes where you can see the connection. You can see Greek words that are used in the Old Testament. This is the same word. It's, it's Genesis 1-2. The spirit is ruaking. It's hovering over the face of the waters. And then something else is interesting. 
Where is it, where is it hovering? It's over the wilderness, the tohu, another very rare word in the Bible. Um, Jerusalem, so it doesn't say it in Acts 2, but we know, um, so we can make this connection, in Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the tohu. It's the abyss. It's literally the word is the wilderness. It's empty. It's void. The only other time you get this word is in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 11. And I think it's worth reading this. Um, the exact same language is used in Deuteronomy 32. Let's read 8 through 11. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, you know, divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the num number of the sons of God. So there is a number of the sons of God. So again, just connect that back to why did there have to be 12 guys sitting there? Uh, 12 disciples, 12 representatives of uh, Israel. Um, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found him in a tohu. He found him in a wilderness. And in the howling waste of this wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that flutters, there's that word, that flutters like an eagle um, over to its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. And uh, I'll stop there, but um, that language is the same language. And now we get the same word used here in Acts 2. We don't get the word wilderness, but what's the wilderness? We, so the same thing is happening here because he's in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the wilderness. So the Spirit is doing the exact same thing it did in Genesis 1. It's doing the exact same thing that in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 that he's saying, that he's using the same language. Now the Spirit is fluttering, is hovering, and landing on these disciples in the midst of a wilderness. Forty years from now, as we've talked about before, that wilderness is going to be destroyed. The temple, Jerusalem, is going to be gone. It is a wilderness. It is no longer the place, it's no longer the home of Jesus. God doesn't dwell there anymore. God has now found a new home, and it's His people. He will take up residence with them, and 40 years from then, that wilderness will be wiped out. So, that's what's happening there. Um, so, I did, want, I did mention two Pentecosts. I'll just jump to that and... Um, so we have uh, two Pentecosts here, or two spirit uh, things happening. Uh, you have Acts 2, the Jews, remember, devout Jews. And, and so what's happening, what's really interesting here is what I think is happening. Here's a, here's a good picture of what I think is happening. Over at the temple, you have all the uh, Jewish devout, again, remember, devout Jewish men gathered together, celebrating the feast. They're over here. Over here in this house, they're worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping God through, in Christ. And all of a sudden, the Spirit comes rushing in, and they hear it. Like, it's not just that something weird is happening over here, and then there's some, you know, they hear the Spirit. It says the men, the men come over to them. So I think what's happening is they're being distracted from this because they're hearing this. And so they come over here, they see what's happening. 
the next thing that happens is Peter starts preaching to them, and then you have 3,000 of these people, these men, these devout Jewish men are baptized. They're, they become Christians and they're baptized. The Spirit comes upon them. If you move over to Acts 10, let's read um, the second receiving of the Spirit. And I think this connects to what I was saying about the promise. I think even in the first giving of the Spirit, you have, this, again, covenants are not these, it's not this just a little thing that happens right here. The covenant is this big thing that's happening throughout Acts. The new covenant is not just a event. It is a series of big events that are pointing to something huge. And so at the end of Acts 10, while Peter was still saying these things, so Peter has just preached the good news to Gentiles. Remember, he, if, if you haven't read, like he's not welcome with the Jews. You know, and so he, here he is preaching to the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing from these people? So the exact same thing is happening that happened in Jerusalem. And um, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for many days. Or some days. And... Um, so you, again, you have the beginning of the Spirit. You have this, uh, so remember, what's the promise? The promise to Abraham is that he would bless, that through him, God would bless all the nations. So at Pentecost, you have the giving of the Spirit to the Jews, to the Jew first. They start preaching the gospel. Many Jews are converted. And what happens in Acts 10 is the fulfillment of that promise. Now the Spirit has come to the Gentiles. The Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. Well, in between there, again, as I mentioned, you got work to do. There's work to be done. When the first promise comes and the promise hasn't been fulfilled yet, the covenant is still, you know, the covenant is going to be fulfilled. Well, that's what you're seeing in Acts 10 with the Gentiles, that what has been promised to them happens. Well, there's a lot of work to be done in between then. And a lot of the work, I don't have time to get into it now, but if it, Again, I may do a blog, but on your own, man, take your Bible and look at Joshua 1 through 10. It matches up absolutely almost event for event to Acts 1 through 10. You begin, it's the conquest of the promised land. Joshua comes into the promised land, and there's a series of events that happens, including Jericho, you know, in, in the AI, and you have the guy who stole and he's punished for it when he's found out. And then there's Gentiles that are brought in that are covenanted to the... Lots of things happen. It's almost event for event what happens in Acts up until chapter 10. So there's work to be done. The same work that Joshua did when he entered into the promised land was to take over and conquer and take dominion of that land is what the disciples and these new Christians are doing. They are conquering the promised land. And now the Gentiles have been brought into this. So that, again, <clears throat> the whole point of this was to just give you a, uh, we're out of time, but the point of what we were, of, of this whole excursion here was, there's a lot of interesting stuff in Acts, but really the point is I want you all to see that, that covenantal language, when, when people talk about covenant, it's not just these six events that happen in the Bible. 
the covenant, God makes covenants with people, and they are these full-orbed, full-bodied, sometimes covering long periods of time. Um, even Joshua, this is a thing that never comes up, Joshua 8. Joshua renews covenant, and a lot of people will just say, well, you know, that's just a continuation of Moses' covenant. So it's the Mosaic covenant just reconfirmed. No, it's not. Like Joshua, when he comes to make a covenant, remember what happens with Moses, everybody else has to stay down, and only Moses is the mediator. When Joshua makes the covenant, God takes all of Israel and separates them, and half of them go here, and half of them go there, and the covenant is made with all of Israel at this point. So something new happens with Joshua and with Israel at that covenant. So God is constantly building on his covenant and, and including strange and unlikely people in his covenants and doing different things that are always connected back to creation. And that's what I want you all to get. When you read, when you read, uh, when, if you do, a, you know, when someone talks about covenant, think about all these other things. Think about how God brings food into covenants and God brings, worship is involved in covenants and and, um, you, know, you know, just uh, start reading the Bible and letting the Bible describe and teach you what it's saying and not necessarily let systematic theologies or, or uh, um, confessions necessarily do all the teaching for you. So, well, thank you for, uh, for listening. I'll, I'll, um, I'll pray real quick and we'll, you can go get kids. Father, we give thanks for your word again, and uh, we ask that uh, it would help us to read your Bible better, and that in turn, we would uh, become more like Christ as we are uh, fed by his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.